Hey everybody, welcome back to Up The Vibe and today I'm joined by returning guest, the author and researcher Paul Wallace, who has just launched another edition to the Fantastic Eden series with The Eden Conspiracy. Hi Paul, how are you doing? G'day Joe, I'm fantastic, how are you going? I'm very good, thank you, and thank you again for uh, coming back on the podcast. I'm eager Pleasure. to talk to you about your, your book and congratulations as well. Thank you so much. Yes, the Eden Conspiracy, fourth in the Eden series, charting around the world, I'm very happy to say, as we speak today. Yeah. One of the pleasures of being able to uh, to discover more about the uh, the world is to go and travel it and see more of it, I guess. so. <laughs> and sure. um, I, I, I've read the book recently, and uh, one of the central themes in the book, in particular this one, um, uh, against all the other Eden series is the argument that the Old, Tens uh, the Old Testament in particular um, was not about worshipping and obeying God, but was more about E.T. contact. I wonder if you could talk us through how you came to that conclusion. Yes, the first clues for me were probably the clues that everyone spots, which are the anomalies in the stories, the things that don't quite make sense. And so... I was coming from uh, the perspective of a Christian faith, and so I'd look at the behavior of God and think, that doesn't make any sense. If God is anything like Jesus reveals God to be, then those can't really be God's stories, where God is so punitive and violent and mercurial. And I think anyone who sort of reads the Bible spots that. And for some people, that's enough to stop them reading any further. There were other anomalies that uh, I'd spotted, which, again, many people spot when they read through the stories. So you get to the God character in Genesis, and that character is saying, let us make the human beings to look like one of us. And you have to stop and ask, well, one of who? And it was a few years ago that I was uh, afforded the time, um, courtesy of an ultimate Frisbee injury, to follow my curiosity and find out what was really going on in those texts. And one of the keys was to realize that the Bible's oldest word for God, Elohim, is a word that if you go to its root meanings, means the powerful ones. And in my book, Escaping from Eden, I asked the question, what happens if we read the Elohim stories and translate it as the powerful ones? How do the stories change? And of course, the stories do change, but not in a random way. They suddenly line up with the source narratives from out of ancient Sumeria, Babylonia, Arcadia, and Assyria. And I discovered very quickly that the Elohim stories of the Bible, the stories of the powerful ones, are the Sumerian stories of sky people. Mm -hmm. And of course, today we have a different word for sky people. We would say extraterrestrials. In the Eden Conspiracy, I show that it's not just the word Elohim, but almost every word that the Old Testament uses for God actually has a different meaning that points to E.T. colonization in the deep past. So you have Elohim, which means the powerful ones, El Elyon, which is the powerful one more powerful than the others, mm -hmm. El Shaddai, the powerful one, the destroyer, and then you've got the powerful one of the Philistines and the powerful one of Persia. And then you've got Yahweh, this name that we recognize as the holy name for God, uh, according to Judaism, but which has been pasted over stories where the 
Yahweh character looks far more what uh, like what you and I would call a dragon, uh, similar to the dragon narratives all around the world. So I, I drill down into those. Again, the stories that emerge when you translate those words using root meanings isn't a random story. It runs in parallel with ancestral narratives all around the world. And you can go to almost any culture around the planet. And if you go to the folkloric layer, to the indigenous story, you will find the same notes recurring of advanced beings coming in the distant past, helping the planet to recover from a cataclysm, terraforming the planet, genetically modifying the life that was here, re-engineering our ancestors to be a useful working class, and then uh, governing over us for a period in an exploitative fashion, and then ultimately making their move and going elsewhere or going back to their home planet. It's an unlikely story, and yet it is one that cultures tell all around the world. And it was the correlations that really caught my attention that made me think there's something going on here. Mm -hmm. It's not just yeah. that randomly different cultures have invented the same story. This is actually a cultural memory that these different cultures and communities have curated in different stories. Something happened and they're telling us what it was. You mentioned a couple of times there about um, what the potential ET agenda is. Um, do you think ultimately um, was it to help us or to exploit us, to protect us? Where do you think, what do you think the agenda is behind this potential ET contact that you, you recognise? Well, when the Old Testament talks about the arrival of our ancient visitors, uh, one of the phrases it uses to describe that is the Tseva Hashemayim, which means the armies of the sky. And it yeah. immediately suggests, oh, a lot of people came, a lot of beings came. And as we read the stories, we realize quite a spectrum of beings came. So at the one end, you've got stories of violent colonization represented in the Bible by the Yahweh narratives. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got beings who came to support and help life on earth, and then to support and help Homo sapiens become a civilization and to nurture us as a species. And the being in the Bible who personifies that end of the spectrum is Asherah. And in the Eden conspiracy, I trace how Judaism related to Asherah and Yahweh for a long, long time before reaching a point where Judaism was changed and pared down to a monotheistic religion where Yahweh is made God and all the other advanced beings of the past are lost. And the, the story suddenly hoiks away from we have company here to help us to a, we have a God who we have to worship and obey, and that's the entire meaning of our existence. And it was a shift that empowered mm -hmm. certain elites and disempowered all the rest of us. And that's one of the reasons why I shine a light on it in mm -hmm. the Eden conspiracy. Yeah. Tell us more about um, this uh, Asherah that you mentioned quite a lot in, in the uh, in the book. Who was who was Asherah and how does she sort of fit into the, sort of the picture? Well, ancient cultures around the world, many of them carry a memory of humanity's great leap forward. So that's the moment when we suddenly changed after tens of thousands of years living as Homo sapiens on the planet's surface. We suddenly sh shifted from living in animal subsistence on the planet's surface as 
foragers or hunter-gatherers, to being farmers. And farming means you can have a settled community, means you can build a town, means you can have a specialised society because you now have surpluses. And once you specialise, that's the beginning of becoming a civilization. And cultures around the world credit that great leap forward, which has fascinated archaeologists and anthropologists since time immemorial. They credit that to tuition given by advanced beings from the stars. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. in Mesoamerica, you have stories of Hun Hunapu. In the Sumerian story, you have Shamhat, who nurtures the primitive human Enkidu. In the Zulu tradition, you have Mbabwana Warisa, who teaches farming <clears throat> and beer making. And Asherah is the Bible's version of those stories. And very much like the others, Asherah is an emphatically female being. And she's portrayed in Jewish carvings uh, with carvings emphasizing the vulva, big breasts, <laughs> big bouffant hair, okay. very feminine at the same time very powerful so many people will be familiar with the uh, ancient carving of gilgamesh the king of uruk who was the crossover king in the sumerian story between the et kings and then the human kings and queens who followed and gilgamesh was this powerful five meter tall man who could hold an adult lion under his arm like a lap cat mm -hmm. this carving in indicates his power but we have found carvings of Asherah depicting her as the lion lady. And one carving in particular sticks in my mind where she's holding two lions by the ears. So she was an advanced being, a powerful being. She nurtured our ancestors, gave us the uh, tutelage that lifted us from animal subsistence to becoming a civilization. And I think it's worth pointing out that very often when history tells the story of individuals it's really telling the story of communities and asherah would be an example of that where asherah represents a whole incursion into mm -hmm. planet earth that worked with human populations all around the planet but it's amazing i mean i had read the bible for decades before i realized there was this whole storyline about asherah in it that it was a story about the great leap forward and that the suppression of that memory is actually dramatized in real time in the Bible. You can read who the people were, what the decisions were that aimed to airbrush out that whole side of the story of paleocontact in Judaism. Mm -hmm. The CT contact, do you think um, these visitors, were they uh, moreover physical beings in physical craft or do you think there was a more of a I guess, um, something we might call the phenomenon about it in sort of more of a maybe consciousness contact outside of that realm? That's a great question. Uh, by the time you get to the New Testament, consciousness contact, as you describe it, does appear to be part of the story because mm -hmm. the writer of 1 John 4 teaches the early Christians how to approach that. But there are other stories in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew canon, where you're clearly looking at 3D beings who use technology that's very recognizable to us. Mm -hmm. They use rocket-based craft to move around the planet or to launch and land from the planet. Yeah, They use drone-like technology to fl fly around the planet. And so you could find this in the stories of Moses 
and Ezekiel, there's a slightly more mystifying element where craft arrive through a hole in the sky and you might begin to think, oh, that sounds like portal technology. Or they come through a whirlwind wind and you think, well, that sounds a bit like what we would call a wormhole. Mm -hmm. Other technology okay. is mentioned that again implies very 3D beings. So there's a moment in Ezekiel where a deputy for Yahweh, who the writer describes as a life form, so there's another smoking gun story. Mm -hmm. The life form who addresses him as human says that Yahweh is very unhappy with the fact that people are commemorating the whole Saber Hashemayim. He wants to be the only advanced being that they remember or bow down to. And he says any family that is not aggrieved by the carvings of the Saber Hashemayim in the temple must be put to death. Now, that sounds ridiculous. But there are cultures in the world today where if you and your family don't exhibit uh, bodily heartfelt grief when your political leader is ill or has passed away, you're in big trouble. And that's the scenario here under the governance of Yahweh. And so to deal with that, six individuals take these devices, one called Akedi Mashatal, one called Akedi Mapasal, and those six apparently can ethnically cleanse an entire district. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so that's technology. That's 3D. That's not uh, sort of energy based ephemeral beings. These are flesh and blood, and as um, <laughs> brutal and violent as the human race can be, only more so because they've got better tech. Yeah. So I think you do have that whole spectrum in the story. You mentioned about Ezekiel um, and. When I read um, the, your, your book, I was also decided I'm going to go jump over to Ezekiel and reread that and just try and grasp how much uh, it mentions uh, what now I consider. And once you see it, you can't you can't unsee it. All the talk about yeah. <laughs> you can't unsee it. The talk of ET contact. Um, looking back at when you were studying the Bible before you kind of got into this subject, would you say that you were? someone who had an inkling of the ET contact story within Ezekiel, or was it something that was well hidden to whilst you were studying it back in the day? Well, I had an inkling about Ezekiel because at the age of 11, I read Eric von Daniken okay, and yeah. <laughs> uh, he makes a big deal of that uh, Ezekiel story as an example of a close encounter in ancient story. So I knew that he interpreted it that way. And I did have a go at interpreting it in other ways. And it's certainly a very perplexing and confusing text. But as you say, once you've, once you've seen it that way, it's very difficult to see it a different way because it's so explicit. Uh, he talks about this life form. The life form addresses him as earthling. It talks about the textures, mm -hmm. the metal textures, the transparent textures the sound of the engines, the feeling of vibration when the engines are mm -hmm. fired up, and then the experience of being flown around, and even the experience of G-forces as he's taken around. He described so it as a wheel. to miss. Yes, and the wheels are described in such detail that NASA has a patent on them, the <laughs> omnidirectional wheel, which it still uses on remote rovers to this day. So that's how technical Ezekiel is. So... I couldn't explain that away, and I was willing to concede the possibility it could indeed be a close encounter. Uh, 
The other close encounter I was aware of through my 33 years in ministry and preaching from the Bible to faith communities around the world was Genesis 6, which is clearly an abduction and hybridization narrative. It only makes sense when you concede that the Bene Elohim are not human and are taking human females for a hybridization program. So I had spotted those two moments and thought, okay, maybe there was contact in the past. But it was only when I finally sat down and entered the research path for Escaping from Eden that I realized there's far more contact in the Bible than that. And indeed, from the first sentences of Genesis to the very end of Revelation, paleo contact is all through the Bible. And through my Eden series, I shine a light on that and show not only that it's there, but that there are implications for you and me today. Once we read it that way, implications about human potential, implications for society, and an understanding of how the narrative was controlled and changed, I think gives us a real clarity in understanding how today's narratives can be hijacked and changed as a way of managing human populations. Yeah. Um, when thinking about this um, ET contact, when reading it without that in mind, you don't see it. It's not obvious. But when you start to think about that, it starts to become more obvious. So so there is of there seems to be a deliberate attempt to airbrush out this paleo contact or to use different words and meanings to make it hard to decipher. Do, do you see it as a deliberate act? And if, and if so, who, who may have been responsible for that? Well, I think some of it was deliberate, some of it was accidental. So if we look at Ezekiel again, or the story of Moses interacting with the pillar that has a cloud and fire attached to it and mm -hmm. that lands vertically and that can communicate with him, I think we've had generations of translators who've looked at those texts and they've had no technological grid by which to approach the texts. They think they are translating a spiritual document describing spiritual experiences. They've never seen a Saturn V launch. They've never seen a SpaceX rocket landing. Mm -hmm. They'd never seen drones or helicopters flying. And so they didn't have anything in their mind by which they could approximate or understand what they were looking at. And some of the translation comes out very odd because of that so that's accidental but in the old testament there is a moment when the elite that's the king the high priest the royal scribe more or less decide they're going to change what the tribes of israel believed about the universe about their place in the universe about whether it was populated or not about who Yahweh was, and they wanted to morph Judaism into a monotheistic religion. Prior to that, the books of Second Kings and Jeremiah are very clear that prior to that, Judaism had been a canon of paleocontact, and that their devotional practices revolved around honoring the advanced beings who had come in the past and helped us. And there's an amazing smoking gun verse in which uh, Second Kings tells us that the people of Israel, it says they worshipped other advanced beings. 
which means they honored other advanced beings and they disparaged Yahweh. They spoke slightingly of him. They rejected his laws, but they remembered beings like Asherah with affection. Now, when I first read that, I, I took on board the moral evaluation placed on that by the writer, because he tells you that expecting you to go, oh, how atrocious, how awful. But then take a step back, separate his evaluation of it from his description. He's just told you that the people of Israel didn't worship Yahweh. That's not what their religion was. Mm -hmm. They acknowledged other advanced beings. And in fact, on every high hill and under every green tree and in every place they lived, we're told by those writers, they built installations to commemorate these advanced beings who enabled us to make the great leap forward thousands of years ago. So that's what Judaism was. The prophet Jeremiah, the high priest Hilkiah, the kings Hezekiah and Josiah believed Judaism shouldn't be that and should be monotheism. And what that meant for the high priests was if they could get the kings on board, it empowered them to get rid of all the other priesthoods. The high priesthood was a Yahwistic priesthood. And they could then get rid of the priests of Baal and the priests of Asherah, who were all Jewish priests and had been commissioned by previous kings, could get rid of them, could demolish their temples, could knock down the standing stones, commemorating the places where the ancient Jews had met these advanced beings, break the altars, destroy the figurines, so that those beings could no longer be remembered or commemorated, King Hezekiah sent the army into the Jerusalem temple to deface all the carvings of the Tseva Hashemayim, because the whole agenda was moving forward, Judaism is going to be a monotheistic religion. None of this paleocontact stuff. One God, one king, one high priesthood, one temple, all the ties coming to Jerusalem under the management of the high priesthood. So it was a phenomenal centralization of power and wealth and a taking control of the narrative, moving it away from paleo contact and onto a religion of worship, obedience and compliance in which the people are now sitting at the bottom of a pyramid of powers with Yahweh and the king and the high priest at the top. And it was a strategic kind of a shift, a redefining of uh, the tribes of Israel as a theocracy. And when the Jewish monarchy ended, which is only 23 years after the death of King Josiah, the great reforming king, it meant that the only power left was the power of the high priesthood to define Jewish religion and therefore Jewish society. Mm -hmm. And it meant Judaism could survive persecution and annexation, conquest, but it survived as a monotheist religion. And the paleocontact aspect had been almost obliterated. But the story of the change is still there. This is the amazing thing. In the Bible and in the Eden conspiracy, I show you the dots and then join the dots so you can see what it was before and then how the change was made and what it became. Yeah, this change is quite a strategic and one that's quite complex and potentially um, something that could have its pitfalls. So do you feel like uh, there may have been 
uh, assistance from from the ET contact in that strategy in doing this, or do you think it was all um, p- partly uh, well, all human in terms of this strategy and getting it all achieved? Well, our ancestors put the idea to us that there's always a non-human layer mm-hmm. to the stories of terrestrial governance, and there's always a bit of a conflict on the council that supervises Project Earth. Uh, Christmas 2020 was when Haim Ashed uh, stepped forward. Mm -hmm. Now, he was the brigadier general who for 27 years was the chief of Israel's space security. And he says that for a long time, we've been in contact at a covert government level with a multiplicity of ET demographics, and they comprise a galactic council. And I would suggest he's merely repeating what the Bible says about what it calls the Sky Council, stories that repeat in the Vedic stories and the Norse stories and in the Sumerian stories. So you've got that conflict there. And if there's a spectrum, then yes, some would want to push things in a direction where humanity can be more easily managed. So again, that's at the Yahweh end of the spectrum, where if the population is and exploited, and uh, order maintained, then that's a thumbs up. But then you've got others at the other end of the spectrum who are saying, no, humanity can have a happier experience than this, and Mm -hmm. we want to nurture human society. So from those stories, you can think, yes, maybe there was some assistance working things in a certain direction. And certainly the story of the um, Jewish kings through the Bible is one where the hidden hand of Yahweh is very involved. The visible leaders are human, but Yahweh is always hoiking things to where he wants. So you could see the great redaction as part of that. But frankly, it makes sense from a purely human perspective as well. And what happened with King Josiah and the transformation of Judaism, there's a very close parallel to what happened to Christianity in Britain in the 1500s. Because there we had a situation where a very powerful despotic king died, that's Henry VIII, and was succeeded by a nine-year-old boy. Josiah was eight when he became king. Mm -hmm. Edward VI was nine. What happened for Edward was that two families stepped forward to look after the new king and guide royal policy. What that really meant was that these two families who were very invested in the religious reforms that Henry VIII had started, took this as their opportunity to push the reforms forward. And so they became the advisors to the king and the reforms continued. It's a very close parallel with what happened with Josiah. He was eight, two families stepped forward to guide him, the families of Hilkiah, the high priest, and Shaphan, the royal scribe. And from the age of eight, he's getting all this advice from a Yahweh's perspective. Sire, I've identified another serious threat to your total power over your kingdom. Would you like me to take care of it? And every yes that the young king gave to the high priest was another will send the army in to knock down altars, knock Mm -hmm. down standing stones, deface carvings in the temple, and then further down the track, disband the other priesthoods knock down the other temples and almost obliterate the memory of your noble predecessors, Jewish kings, who built the temples to Asherah. 
who built the temples to Baal and employed the priests who commemorated those other entities. So here you've got the influence of Yahwism pushing away all the other narratives, all the other authorities as well. So now there's only one voice that you can listen to. Instead of having multiple news agencies, multiple narratives, there's only the one narrative. And so the parallel, I think, is quite close and makes sense um, from a human perspective. Here is an institution, the Jerusalem Temple, that wants to centralize power. Here is a family that wants more economic control. Here is an elite that wants more dominance than it already has. And this is a way of empowering the monarchy as well, because when Josiah says, we'll choose Yahweh to be our God, and chooses a violent colonizer, by doing that, he's given himself permission to use violent force to affect that change and to affect any future royal policy. And the reason that empires around the world have been able to conquer other people's countries in the name of God is because they have a violent colonizing God whom they are serving and against whose mm -hmm. behavior they can justify their own. So the change that Josiah made has been warmly embraced by powers from that day to this as a way of hijacking the God concept and using it to give some kind of a divine imprimatur on their own violent policies, whether it's imperialism, colonialism, conquest of other people's countries, mm -hmm. Yeah, exploitation of people, enslavement of other races, all done in the name of God. Mm -hmm. uh, so I recently saw a clip of uh, Billy Carson, and he describes the Bible as a weaving together of various other ancient texts, which we just talked about earlier, things like the Enuma Elish, uh, the Atrahasis, uh, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and and various others. Uh, do you do you see the Bible in that way? What what is the Bible to you? Is it story? Is it history? Or maybe even is it is it kind of a propaganda with all the heavy redactions and changes to the truth? <laughs> yes, uh, it's all those things. Yes, certainly propaganda. But the way the propaganda works is very often you're looking at a redacted text. So within the text, you may have history and you may have real memory of things that really happened but then there's a little spin put on it by the redactor. Mm -hmm. So I gave an example earlier on where the narrator is saying, well, this was Jewish practice. On every high hill under every green tree, they built installations to commemorate advanced beings who helped us in the distant past. There's the history, there's the memory. And here comes another sentence. Wasn't that awful? There's the spin. Mm -hmm. And that's how the writer deals with Asherah, for instance that he acknowledges that there was a devotion to Asherah all throughout Judea and in the world beyond, but then by adding how atrocious that was, this was the sin of their forefathers, you're expected to coordinate all off and see it negatively. And that's more or less how the writer deals with history that was already known that couldn't be forgotten. A spin is put on it. This was the sin of our ancestors. Or to say, well, the reason Solomon and uh, Ahaziah and uh, Ahaz 
had installations to other beings was because they had foreign wives. Their foreign wives were into all this stuff. So they built these temples just to keep their wives quiet. That's what's added to the story to try and explain to the devout Jew why their kings had honored people like Asherah. And uh, so that turns the history into propaganda. Mm -hmm. But it's it's fairly transparent. It's not hard to spot. Uh, and if you do find it hard to spot, let me recommend a little book called 1066 and all that, which is uh, a, an English comedy that was, I think it was written in the 1920s. And it's a retelling of uh, British history in an amusing, uh, lampooning kind of way. And the writer will talk about kings and queens and say, this king was a very bad king and everything he did was very bad. He was even worse than his ancestors. And that's exactly the same kind of language you find in the Bible when the narrator is wanting to acknowledge history that's already well known, but put a spin on it so that it becomes a text that teaches monotheism. Yeah, I suppose that's the uh, the gift you have if you're going to write it is to put your spin on it. And I don't know, sometimes that might not be as deliberate. It's just it's almost like putting your consciousness on the page sort of and, and some you don't recognize oh, it. Yeah. Oh, that's that's very true. And I mean, it, uh, we've made it sound really. Um, what's the word? Um, Oh, I've forgotten the word for it, but, uh, you know, it, an ill intent behind these changes. But the people who made these changes were zealous Yahwists. And you're right to say this was just part of their consciousness. This was part of their worldview. And they're just telling the story in a way that's coherent for them. Mm -hmm. And what they were offering was something positive. The idea of monotheism was a very powerful and positive idea that there's only one God and source of the cosmos, and you shouldn't bow down to anything less than the source of the cosmos and everything in it. That's a powerful and potentially empowering idea. But unfortunately, if you then equate that God with the violent Yahweh, you've just undone all the benefit you've offered <laughs> by mm -hmm. creating a universe in which everyone has to tiptoe around for fear of offending the Almighty, when in fact the Almighty is a concept absent from the original telling of the stories so it's a very convoluted and mixed story and i think in the eden conspiracy i show that the distortions that came with that change uh, have been potentially more damaging than the benefit of introducing the idea of monotheism because while it may be true there's only one ultimate source of all things the idea of God and the word God has been so hijacked by religion through the ages that it becomes quite difficult to even use the word without all sorts of restrictive negative programming clicking on in people's minds. And it's a reason why many of my friends avoid the word God altogether. And I you say negative programming, negative program negative programming associated with the word god really okay so if i <laughs> if i say the word god for many people they're immediately thinking worship obedience sin righteousness heaven mm -hmm. hell all that thinking clicks into place and the idea that we exist only as meek slaves of the almighty now i am comfortable with the word god because i can understand god differently to that but if you've had 
an education rooted in that religious worldview. And if that education goes back generations, I understand why you might struggle with the word God and might prefer different language to describe what we're talking about when, when it comes to the ultimate cause of things. Yeah. Um, so in terms of um, your relationship to your uh, church colleagues, and I, I did broach this subject on our, on our last chat. Um, since we last spoke, have any of them reached out to you? Yes. I am really interested to see what the response of uh, communities of faith is to my Eden series, and in particular, senior leaders of the church, because I do find in academic circles, it's not hard to find theologians who will read what I've read and say, yes, well, I think I'm 90% with you. But what do you do if you're 90% with the Eden series and you are a pastor of a church? Do you step forward and tell your congregation, uh, actually, I believe a whole chunk of the Bible is about aliens and not about God? That is not necessarily going to enhance your teaching relationship with your church and would split most congregations. And so a lot of pastors are in the place of working out how can we move our people's thinking forward and open it up so that we can begin to have these conversations without mm -hmm. it being a huge trauma. Mm -hmm. Now, the Roman Catholic Church uh, actually made steps in that direction back in 2009 when it held the colloquium. Now, this was under the most conservative pope in my lifetime, Pope Benedict XVI, and he commissioned the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to hold this colloquium, a symposium of top theologians and scholars, to discuss the implications of contact with ET civilizations. And spokespeople for the Pope stepped forward before and after that colloquium to say, there's no theological issue. We should be ready to embrace a brother or sister alien. We shouldn't be blown out the water by it. It just means the creator's been busier than we thought. And in that way, they were preparing the faithful of the Roman Catholic communion to begin to do business with the idea of populated universe. And I think it was um, Guy Consolmagno, the senior astronomer for the Vatican Observatory, who said we shouldn't be surprised by contact experiences because the Bible is full of contact experiences from start to finish, Old Testament and New Testament. So that's an example of church leadership trying to move the conversation forward. And in the Eden Conspiracy, I have conversations with a mega pastor in the States who would be well networked with other mega pastors who know some of what I'm saying. They know it's a populated universe. They know we're in contact. They know not all those God stories are God stories, particularly in the Old Testament, and are just beginning to ask each other, how do we move the conversation forward? Okay. And in the Eden Conspiracy, you'll see my conversations with one of these mega pastors as to how we might best do that without what is a mega pastor a huge trauma so it sounds a like one pastor. up from a pastor as a guest but uh well like... it is <laughs> it's not one up from a pastor it's just a pastor who has a church that is thousands or tens of thousands strong 
Yeah. And uh, they probably have a TV channel as well. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So it's people with a lot of influence, particularly in American Christianity, and usually at the charismatic, evangelical, Pentecostal side of things. And what's Mm -hmm. interesting about that end of the Christian spectrum is there's a lot of paranormal experience going on. And by paranormal, I mean things like healing, entity removal, but also contact experiences, remote viewing, future viewing, experiences that are given Christian labels in the church, but that actually belong to humanity more broadly. And you can find the same experiences in shamanic protocols, traditional healing all around the world. And often these experiences are interpreted within the frame of New Testament theology. But if you experience them for long enough, you realize New Testament theology doesn't quite embrace everything that's happening. And your paradigm is going to be stretched and stretched and stretched until you realize you need a slightly different paradigm. And that's when those pastors start calling me up and saying, can I have a session? Mm -hmm. Sure. And for those that are, aren't calling you right now, do you think um, I think there's a, a lack of interest or engagement with the topic? Or do you think there's still that kind of stigma of it being a, uh, a conspiracy subject, um, dangerous narratives? Well, yes. What's frustrating to me is that I can find theologians and mega pastors who, who know there's something in what I'm saying, but the rank and file of the churches still believe, for the most part, this is a taboo. Mm-hmm. that they can't talk about populated universe, that they can't talk about ETs in the Bible. And so they don't. And uh, a lot of my clients come from that demographic of saying, I've had a close encounter experience, or I've seen this in the text, and I'm not allowed to talk about it at church. Can I talk to you about it? Mm-hmm. And um, it's frustrating because I think you could go to almost any congregation, and particularly uh, in the States where a lot of the churches are organized around doctrinal bases, you will see a community that on the surface believes these 12 theological statements. But if you quiz the members of that church uh, carefully enough and with enough trust, you'll realize that a good proportion of them have had contact experiences, have had close encounter experiences, have had paranormal experiences that are well outside the official narratives of their faith have seen things in the scriptures and their personal beliefs are different to the beliefs of the church that they're a member of. But you would never know mm-hmm. from the public life of the church because there's no uh, forum in which those experiences can be voiced. And the feeling is this is all a taboo. And the feeling is very strong because it has been a taboo for nearly 2000 years. But I imagine um, since 2017 and the revelations about the Nimitz and how things have developed with all these UFO hearings that were kind of happening, whatever whether you think they are uh, um, going towards disclosure or not, this must be helping to break that stigma and to change things. It is helping. It is helping that the Pentagon authenticated that footing and then came clean and said it's had a unit in place for 70 years investigating ufo crashes so now Mm -hmm. there's an acknowledgement that ufology is something real then we had the uh, 
Senate briefings, an acknowledgement of the UFO phenomenon to the extent that every six weeks, U.S. military activity is interfered with by UFO encounters. That was a little piece of information secreted in the tiny six-page, was it nine-page yeah. briefing paper that the Senate saw a couple of years ago. Now we've had congressional hearings. So there is a public acknowledgement that we are in company. It doesn't stay long in the news cycle, so many people miss it. Other people see it and then are really just kept too busy with other things to think through the implications of it. But it does help there is that public acknowledgement in enabling people to have a serious conversation. Mm -hmm. But as for breaking the taboo, unfortunately, there is still a feeling in communities of faith that this information is somehow in conflict with Christianity or in conflict with Judaism mm -hmm. when it really isn't. Judaism has curated one of the best bodies of ancient literature describing close encounters that you can find anywhere in the world. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I value the Hebrew scriptures so much, because however they've been redacted and changed, the original stories are still there. The original vocabulary is still there to show us what it was our ancestors saw. And the feeling of taboo is strong because for a long time, Christians have viewed the world through the lens of an orthodoxy that only has certain categories of reality, meaning that everything in the universe has to be either God, the devil, angels, demons, light, dark, humans, animal, vegetable, mineral, and nothing else. And for that reason, I do have communication from Christian believers who have seen the phenomenon, have acknowledged that we're getting visited, but which of those boxes do they put these visitors in? Mm -hmm. Are they animal, mm -hmm. vegetable, mineral? No, it must be demons. Mm -hmm. And I hear that a lot from people. If there's anything, um, not only if there's anything worrying or malicious about the beings, but if there's anything about them that contradicts the Christian story, well, that's demonic. Mm -hmm. If someone says they've had a close encounter with an ET, no, it was an encounter with a demon. If anyone says they were abducted by someone who wasn't human, no, it was a demon. And I hear a lot of this from people who are acknowledging the experience, but are refusing to interpret it outside of this very small canon of boxes. And through my books, I'm wanting to show, no, the Bible has far more boxes than that. There's far mm. more reality than that. And our ancestors more, were more willing to describe what they saw in very real terms rather than diminish it to some uh, trope of this is the demon or this is the devil. Going through uh, the last uh, few years writing these books, do you feel like your faith and relationship to God as we were talking about earlier uh, in terms of having negative programming, do you think that relationship has changed? Has it been tested? It certainly changed. And I have to realize now, looking back, that for a long time, my idea of God was a very anthropomorphic one, that I really was thinking about a powerful being who played the role of puppet master over the cosmos. And I've had to deconstruct that because I realized that idea was built on nothing. 
other than the habitual thought mm -hmm. of faith communities. It's not what's actually in the scriptures. And I have come to really respect and value the description of God given by the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 when he's in Athens and he's having to define what he means by God to a non-religious audience. So we can't give a pat Jewish answer or a pat Christian answer. He has to define what he means from scratch. And so he says, by God, I mean the source of the cosmos and everything in it, that in which we all live and move and have our being, of which we are all offspring. And I love that vision of God. It's very close to the way Plato talked about God, the Apostle Paul being a huge fan of Plato. And I would say that rings true for me. I love that vision because it says, we're all emanations of source, which to my mind is a statement of the obvious. My intelligence is, is a participation in source intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's only logical. Yeah. My consciousness is an expression of source consciousness. Well, that's only logical. So mm -hmm. I find that way of talking about God very helpful. And I love the fact that in that vision of Paul's, there's no separation. It's not a religious message of, you are separated from God and you're going to have to claw your way back into his good books and we, the priests and pastors, will tell you how. He says, no, we all live and move and have our being in source. We are all offspring of source. And it heightens my expectation of my connection with God, to use that language, because if that's true, I should fully expect to have thoughts that are downloading information from the source uh, thinking divine thoughts getting divine insights mm -hmm. and i find that truer to my experience than the the old model it raises my expectation of amazing and uh, supernatural things happening because we're all connected in this fascinating way so it's a very empowering way it disempowers all the politics of fear which have been endemic to a lot of religion a lot of religious manipulation and control, even the maintenance of congregations is built on the fear of divine displeasure, the fear of divine punishment. But this vision of God is different. And having come to terms with that, it enables me to see Jesus differently and understand Jesus is not um, a figure who is building what he's doing on a narrative of worship, obedience or consequences heaven or hell christian non-christian church non-church these binaries came later as christianity was institutionalized mm -hmm. jesus was actually talking about something more cosmic and empowering than that and when i use my root meanings approach to look at jesus i find a more cosmic vision so for instance Matthew's gospel summarizes the message Jesus toured with in the first year of his ministry. And the conventional translation sounds like that fear-based worship and obedience religion. The conventional translation says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And after 2000 years of entrainment, we hear that as you sort your life out, you clean yourself up. Because God is about to show up and you wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of him. And that's how we hear that message. But you go to the root meanings. Repent means go beyond the mind. Go beyond the mind. Mm -hmm. 
Go beyond what you think. Think with more than this. Open yourself up to new things because the realm, kingdom means realm, of the Uranon, well, that's space, that's the cosmos. The realm of the cosmos is available to you. What does it mean to say you can go beyond the mind and think new things and change your paradigm because the cosmic realm is available to you? The powers, principles, people of the cosmos available to you. This is an incredibly wide vision inviting us to discover what's real and what's possible. And when the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Matthew, I think it is, say the cosmic realm is within you, this goes back to what you were saying about earlier wisdom traditions, because that's hermeticism that says if you peer into yourself, you will find the universe. And if you peer into the universe, you'll find yourself. And a more profound invitation to explore reality and explore what's possible, I could hardly imagine. And that's the beginning, that's the summary of Jesus's teaching given by the Gospels, the moment you go to the root meanings of the words, which in my mind is the best way of peeling back centuries of interpretation and misinterpretation and asking afresh, what was he really on about? Yeah, um, when opening yourself up to trying to understand reality more and opening your consciousness, maybe, maybe put it that way, do you ever find yourself with a bit of a dilemma? I, I guess, from my perspective, there's this idea that we we all want to heal a lot of the world, heal a lot of the polarization, heal, heal a lot of the wounds that humanity has suffered over the years. But as you gain this sort of other perspective of what reality is about, you see that it's important to have both the positive and the negative in there for experience. Do, do you ever find that dilemma that there's a kind of like we need to move away from a lot of the, the negative agendas and a lot of the fear-based stuff, but maybe at a higher perspective, there is a purpose for that in reality as well. It's, it's, do, do you understand them? Do, 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 do you ever yes, think Yes, I that? do. I think uh, I, that's a really profound question. Um, I think, yes, I think on the one hand, once you recognize how the powers can use um, narrative and fear to polarize and divide people so that we can be atomized and managed, then you certainly see that fear is something to be moved away from. And a lot of people's fear buttons are being pressed at the moment by the way we're communicated to by government by the way algorithms work mm -hmm. and the button is pressed so that we are often polarized in a way that we don't need to be and it's very unfortunate when you look at um the uh, selective outrage uh, to use chris rock's phrase that marks a lot of our public conversation on social media it's just so sad when you look at the hysteria around um, gender politics and identity politics, you think, well, what is the problem? There have always been all kinds of people. Why is there now a growing culture war around that very basic fact? Mm -hmm. And I think my vision of the universe from Plato, uh, mediated through the Apostle Paul, 
is one that does aspire to a human society that is more loving and respectful and more united. I mentioned the dragon narratives of the Bible. The punchline of dragon narratives all around the world is that when human beings come together and find their unity and can act together and speak with one voice, that's when we disempower the dragons, be they corporations, be they the 1%, be they despotic government. It's very important for social progress that we find each other and learn to live together. So there's that as an ethic on the one hand. On the other hand, um, there is truth in what you're saying about light and dark being essential to our experience. And I've found it helpful to go back to Plato's vision of, of why we are all here why we are material beings in the, in the material world, why consciousness fractalized so that you are now a consciousness and I am another consciousness and the tree outside is another consciousness and the animal in the backyard is another consciousness. What's the point of that? What's the meaning of that? Well, Plato suggested that this is all happening so that the cosmos can answer the question, can we do intelligence and consciousness as a universe of discrete entities exercising free choice? Can we as human beings do harmony as a society of beings exercising free will? I think this is one way of stating the great question of life. And yeah. at an individual level, we're here to answer that question as well. At an individual level, we're here to have experiences and to learn things. Are you able to thrive in this multifaceted world? Are you able to live in harmony with your environment and with the beings around you? This is a question at one level or another we all wrestle with. Mm -hmm. And in order to make that journey and learn those lessons, we have to deal with things. We have to deal with people in our lives some of whom play the comic relief, some of whom play the love interest, some of whom heighten the tension, some of whom are the arch enemy. And the art of life is learning to marshal all of these realities. And so in that context, what you were saying about needing the light and the dark is absolutely true. You can only learn patience by having something you have to be patient with. Exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, only learn uh, grace and forgiveness by having something you need to forgive and be gracious about. And these are not annoyances or interruptions to life. This is the stuff of the life, the stuff of life mm -hmm. that we learn how to marshal the experiences we're having and learn from them. And as best we can uh, come to a place of equanimity, be it harmony as best we can with our environment so that we have a happy and positive human experience. And hopefully by the time we die, we can say, yeah, nailed it. <laughs> and Plato kind of said that is that is the idea that if you get to the end of life and you are all full of um, wounds and annoyance and frustration and resentment and unforgiveness and unfulfilled ambition, um, Plato said that's a recipe for not being able to go on to the next thing or uh, maybe having to go around another time. Mm -hmm. uh, to have another go at learning these things. Mm -hmm. And when I first read that in Plato, I thought, well, that's an interesting idea, but that sounds more like Buddhism than Christianity. 
Now that I probed the work of the church fathers a little more, I realized that many of the early teachers of Christianity believed exactly what Plato was saying, that we are here to learn in that way, and that uh, you might have to go around another time if you haven't mm -hmm. had an experience from which you've learned and that you feel, okay, I have learned the lessons, I am ready for the next thing. That idea is actually to be found in the roots of Christianity. It's hinted at in Judaism. It's certainly there in Buddhism. Plato pulls it all together. And that's been part of my rediscovery. And I realized that institutional Christianity silenced that aspect of teaching, again, because it's unhelpful if you're wanting to hold the ultimate carrot and stick over your people and control people's behavior. The moment you lose the heaven and hell narrative, people relax and uh, aren't as vulnerable to the manipulations of religious leadership as before. And I think that's one of the reasons some of these more interesting narratives have been silenced through the ages. Do you think um, we're moving into a period where um, history is going to be repeating itself in a way, or do you think we're moving into a new era for humanity and um, more, hopefully a better one? <laughs> Maybe a bit of both. I do think we are moving into a new era. I'm finding people of all ages breaking out of old programming in a way I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. I find people into their 80s coming to me and saying, I no longer believe what I did 10 years ago. I have broken out of my religious programming. I'm very questioning of what government authorities say. And I've got a real appetite on me to find out what's our real history. Who are we really? What are we really capable of? And I think it's unusual for people that late in life to make a shift like that, and I hear that from people in their 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, and I think that's exciting. I think that is something new. I'm finding more and more people willing to talk about um, contact experiences and paranormal experiences than would have been the case when I was at school, for instance, where you'd be considered a little bit um, crazy to have those ideas or claim those experiences. I think the planet and our galaxy is in a different part of space than it's been before. And it's a bit like entering what the Celts would call thin space, where the veil in between dimensions is a little bit thinner than it was before. And that's why contact experiences of a physical and a uh, consciousness kind, I think are more prevalent now than they've been for a long, long time. So all this is shifting us in a direction. I think that relates to the whole experience of <clears throat> moving into postmodernism, where the old narratives are questioned and no longer believed. When that's combined with an appetite for the truth, I find that really exciting. And I find I'm connecting with people who in the 60s you describe as seekers all around the world, people who want to know the truth and are excited and have an appetite to know what's real, what's possible, mm -hmm. what is true about who we are, what are we really capable of. So I think new era, yes, 
I think the politics, exopolitics, if I can use that word, are different now to what they've been before. I think there are more demographics on the Galactic Council than in the past. I think the agreement on that council is less intact than it's been. And that means that our future isn't set in stone. I think it's important to know that because I think some of the agendas that people pick up on the things the powers have intended for us in the decades ahead might sound very dark and disturbing and worrying. But I believe that the future is not set in stone and that this is a time to start paying attention, not uh, just giving in compliantly to whatever is coming our way. So I think new things are coming. At the same time, uh, after decades of reading ancestral narratives, I would suggest every generation has to struggle similar struggles. Every generation has to struggle for accountable leadership, for democracy, for the non-censorship of information. And I think those struggles are always live and important in every age. Yeah. Do you see um, the equal amounts of polarization between sort of left and right in Australia as we, we probably recognize in, in America? Um, people are somewhat polarized, but not in quite the way that we see in America. And I don't know if that has a purely human explanation because of the way politics works in the States, because of the way the media is owned and managed so that you've got, you know, you either listen to CNN or you listen to Fox news, <laughs> um, or you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. Um, there may be human explanations for polarization, but I would say this, if we were to discover decades from now that some agency had been broadcasting frequencies over the USA to induce a state of anxiety and paranoia, I think that would fit the facts of what we're seeing. I think it is more extreme there than in other places. And I think around some issues, the rest of the world looks on in bafflement at what's happening there and hmm. some anxiety and concern. But there's a measure of that for sure yeah. in Australia and uh, politically, certainly. But on the topics we've been discussing, I think it's somewhat countercultural in Australia to have conversations like this. Hmm. Uh, it's not the same culture as you'd find in france where mature gentlemen will sit outside a coffee shop discussing philosophy um australia is a much more doers than that but things are shifting and i think particularly with the advent of the internet there's been more opportunity for australians to listen to alternative narratives than there's been in the past in the states for a long time there's been community radio and uh, shows like um, um, Coast to Coast and uh, oh, there was a, I've forgotten the name of the great guy who pioneered this kind of radio that allows people to call in and talk about their experiences. Art Bell. Art Bell, that's right. That's mm -hmm. who I mean. So on the airwaves, there have been extracurricular experiences and ideas being discussed for a long time in the States. And that's why it's easier to have conversations about ET contact and ufology in the States, despite the fact it's taken so long for the U.S. government to acknowledge anything. Whereas Australia, we haven't had anything like that. We haven't had that kind of radio. Mm. And it's only been 
since Google, really, that Australians can begin to expose themselves to stories that don't make the TV. So things are shifting so that more and more in Australia, we're having this kind of conversation. We're learning about our own history, the uh, amazing mass sightings that have happened in Australia, and the amazing information of Indigenous Australians from tens of thousands of years ago. All these things are resurfacing and shifting the mainstream conversation. So for that reason, I think it's very timely for me to be coming along with the Eden Conspiracy and other books, because there are readers out there willing to do mm -hmm. business with it. And many who will pick up the books and say, this reinforces my own experiences or thoughts that I've had for a long, long time, or they'll pick it up and for the first time say, I now have questions that I want to pursue. And I love being in conversation with people who have that experience. And every day I have emails from people saying exactly that. My worldview has just blown open. Mm -hmm. What do I do next? You're very well versed on understanding the uh, the various cultures around the world. But I wonder if you've spent as much time looking into the Aboriginal culture and their history and what they talk about ET contact. Obviously, being in Australia, there must be much more access to that. Well, yes, there is. And I really would like to spend much more time sitting at the feet of uh, Indigenous leaders in Australia from the Aboriginal Australian community. And I do give a nod to that in Echoes of Eden, where I talk about Kano, who is a very reared, revered Aboriginal leader, mm -hmm. and what he showed us about the nature of this world that we're living in. And then in the Eden Conspiracy, I go to the Northern Territory and sit at the feet of a guardian of Yongu tradition with their stories about the Great Leap Forward from an Australian Aboriginal perspective. It's not always easy to get the information because guardians of traditional cultures around the world have had to protect their information for a long time. It's not that long ago that the stolen generation policy ended that was intended to obliterate indigenous culture mm. in the USA, in Canada, and in Australia, for 100 years, 1880 to 1980, children were kidnapped from their families and imprisoned in what were either called missions in Australia or boarding schools in Canada in order to prevent the transfer of Indigenous knowledge. And so guardians of those traditions have become very, very protective. And it's not easy for a total stranger, uh, a white fella, as I'd be called, to turn up and say, tell me all your stories and be told all the stories. It takes a lot of, uh, win it, willing of winning of trust. And if you go along and say, tell me all your stories, because I want to put them in a book, um, you're not necessarily going to be told everything. It's a mm -hmm. much slower and longer conversation than yeah. that. Mm -hmm. But I, in my book, Echoes of Eden, I do encourage people to the extent that you can Enjoy the contact that you have with the indigenous cultures and stories of your own heritage of the country in which you live, because I do think this is a time where more of us are willing to listen with respect to indigenous story and to the explanations of traditional cultures, because what we have been taught um, hasn't scratched the itch. We know there's more going on 
than we were taught in school or than we see on the nine o'clock news. And I hope this is a time when more of the treasures of indigenous knowledge will be shared. And to the extent that I'm making that journey, I'm sharing it as I go in my Eden books from book to book. Yeah, I see there's um, this idea of shifting uh, paradigms is across so many different areas. It's not just in terms of what we've been talking about, the Bible and religion and, and history. It's also with regarding to science in, in terms of um, whether consciousness or matter is fundamental. And it's also in so many other areas of of our nature of reality. It's quite, it really just give you the, a good impression that we're, we're entering a new era of consciousness, of, of understanding reality. I see so many examples of that around. So it seems like exciting times. Um, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, you've, you said at the start that uh, you were doing, uh, you've managed to do a lot of traveling for your reading. I wonder what's, um, what's next and uh, whether you're going to be doing a lot more of the fifth kind TV, which I do watch a lot of. Oh, for sure. Yes, Fifth Kind TV is going from strength to strength and it represents a lifetime of travel and study, really. I mean, people reading uh, the Eden series will say, how has Paul managed to travel the world so many times in the last few years when we've been locked down for half that time? And the answer is that I've really compressed a lifetime of travel into my writing uh, travel going back decades it is a very expensive business traveling the world and so i think mm -hmm. my next yeah. step with fifth kind tv and with the eden series will be to go to one place and drill down through all the layers of information that exist in that place from current cultural practice current shamanic practice ancient narratives ancient ceremony ancient texts, the archaeological finds, and seeing what picture emerges when you put all those layers together from a single place. Again, I won't be able to help myself. I will correlate that with other story around the world. But to be able to go to a place and say, look, just in this one location, the story of humanity changes once we listen to the information at mm -hmm. every layer. So that's something I'm really interested in doing. Having said that, though, I am outlining a series that we're uh, pitching to some producers right now that would involve a bit more travel once again, uh, but this time traveling with a camera crew so that uh, not only does the travel result in a book, but it'll result in a series that enables people to uh, sight and sound make the journey with us. Oh, fantastic. So tell, tell us more about how people can reach you and um, also how to get hold of this book. Sure. Well, you can find Fifth Kind TV at our new website, fifthkind.tv. That's where you'll find all our material, interviews, documentaries, articles. There is the Fifth Kind TV on YouTube as well and the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. I'm in the comments every day if you want to get into conversation with me. If you read my books and have questions, you can reach me through my website, paulanthonywallace.com. That's Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com. And if you're interested in doing coaching with me, you can find me through the website. If you've had a close, ex close encounter experience you're processing or something from your past or just 
one of those regular life transitions, reach me through my website and I'd be happy to connect with you. Well, thank you for coming on and uh, talking about this book and everything else. And uh, hope wish you well with all, all your uh, adventures and uh, continuing the Eden series. Thanks for that, Joe. And I'll look forward to our next conversation. Thank you.